Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And this week, something really very special as we visit the barn for the very first time. I meet Roger Knoll, head roadie for Paul Weller, a man who's been part of the crew since 1999. We talk about The Jam, his own band, Skeletal Family, playing with Paul on record and travelling all over the world looking after his guitars and those live performances. I was lucky enough to join Roger at Paul Weller HQ, Blackburn Studio in Surrey, at the end of their 2021 tour, a tour that sadly came to an early end due to COVID. I know that you're going to love this episode, so let's get into it. Roger Noel, thanks for joining me. No problem. You've had a hell of a day of it. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> so we're back off tour. What have you been doing today? Is it called loading in? Yeah, loading all the equipment back into the studio and putting it in the various places where it's kept. There's a place for everything, right? It's all meant to go in a certain area. There is certain- a place for everything and certain things need setting up just in case Paul wants to pop in and record something. I mean, you've been working for like three hours, like unloading that van. Yeah, well... I was, I was meant to help, but I don't think I was any help whatsoever. Well, the thing is, the lights aren't working around the studio, so we kept losing things. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I'm so chuffed to have you um, on the podcast. Thank you for my first experience here at Black Barn as well. So thank you for the invite. Yeah, this welcome been very to Weller World. <laughs> yeah, this is very special, I <laughs> have to say. This is the nerve centre. This is where everything happens. Yeah. yeah, I kind of feel like I'm in somebody's home, though, without an invite. Do you know what I mean? It's like, like, does, like Mr. Weller's not invited me in. You've invited, you snuck me in the back door. <laughs> well, we could do it in the roadie shed if you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is there a shed you've got? Is there? <laughs> Well, there's kind of like everything's down here. They've got the container for all the old flight cases. There's the roadie shed where we keep most of the live equipment. There's the office for Dominic, the accountant. And obviously there's a studio as well. It's a very special place, Blackburn. But we'll get into that with the conversation that we're going to have. So I'm really excited about talking to you, Roger, I have to say. First of all, let's kick off where this all began. Where did this love of music start for you? I was thinking about this. It started probably way back in 1972. And weirdly enough, the kids in the village where I grew up in, there were six or seven of us went camping 
And that year there was stuff like Alice Cooper and Schools Out and Bowie in Life on Mars and things like that. And we had the radio on all the time. And I think that's probably where I first started taking a big interest in music. And I think after that weekend, a week, sorry, we were there for a week, I went and bought David Bowie's Life on Mars. And then that kind of changed everything for me. That's not a bad place to start, to be fair, is it, that one? I don't know, he's with Bowie, but Bowie was like the first person I just sort of went, like probably like everybody when Ziggy appeared on the scene, just sort of kind of went, wow. (laughs) And the Bowie connection continues. We'll get into that as we talk about your work, your career and stuff. So in terms of wanting to play music and be part of that world, was that something that came from a very early age as well then? Not really. I was always into music. So I was always the kid at school with albums under his arm and and things like that. And sort of early 70s, I was kind of like long-haired, big, great coat, rocker. And then, of course, when punk rock came around, it, it kind of changed a lot of people's lives and everybody thought, do you know what? I can do that. It's not hard. I can do that. And I think what really spurred me on was there's some kids in fifth form with me and they were, for want of a better word, they were like um, sort of tough, so to speak. Right. And I went into a common room and they were practicing in a band and I just thought, they've got a band. I want a band. And then sort of punk came sort of slightly after that. And me and a couple of mates kind of formed a punk band, which I was the singer. Not that I could sing. We had a bass player who had like a guitar with two strings on. Wasn't a bass. (laughs) And um, (laughs) another kid on drums and a kid called Stephen Hood playing guitar. And the guy playing bass, he just like couldn't do it. So I said, well, I can do that. So I just went out and bought a bass and became the bass player. But it was kind of like a learning curve, obviously, because at first I'm like, what do you do with it? I kind of always wanted to be in a band and I sort of, it kind of, Started there, really. And then with with punk coming out, there was like a big whole new world for everybody. When did you first understand who Paul Weller was, hear that music, the jam? Probably like everybody else, 76, 77, 78. The first time I saw the jam was at Bradford St. George's Hall. There's a band called the Dickies supporting them. And I think that's the one and only time I've seen the jam. I was going to go to Leeds, Queens Hall, sort of like 82 towards the end. But to be fair, I mean, the early jam stuff was great. But when once they started getting a bit sorely, it sort of like lost me a little bit then. <laughs> Too soft. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, <laughs> I mean, learning to play the bass and things like that, you do appreciate what other musicians are doing. So, so my musical interests widen then definitely. And you appreciate music a little bit more mm. when you're actually playing it. But I've always been on the heavy side of things. So once you started tinkling with that Hammond and getting brass <laughs> sections in, that was it for me. <laughs> so you didn't even go I anywhere. I won't even near- mention the Style Council. <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't go anywhere near the Style Council, right? <laughs> so yeah. But I mean, Paul's obviously a great songwriter, as we all know. So, you know, and a great musician. So when he started doing his solo stuff, I think I got the first single. I was in Woolworths and actually bought it on a cassette because it was cheap. <laughs> Being from Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> Into Tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's still that still stacks up. What a great single! Now, around the time that the jam was splitting, then was the time at which your music career as a bass player was kind of taking off as well. Was that would that be right? About eighty two, end December eighty two. Yeah, I mean the band Skeletal Family has basically been the same three people more or less all the way through. And I kind of formed a band called The Elements with Stan Greenwood on guitar, a guy called Ian Taylor I used to go to school with, and we've had various drummers and a girl called Jane Tretton. And it's funny because Stan actually only lived about a mile away from me, but because of where he lived, he went to a totally different school. He went one way and I went with the other. We didn't really meet till I was at Keithley College when I was like 18, but we've been together not in the biblical sense, of course, but <laughs> musically we've been together right up until the present day. So, I mean, The Elements, we, we kind of did an album ourselves and we learned a lot off doing that. And then it came to a point where we had change of singer and we kind of went more positive punk. We were kind of always a bit punk, obviously, but we kind of went more positive punk at the time when Bauhaus and Killing Joke and all that, those bands were going. And we did a single that luckily enough John Peel liked. So. And lots of like Radio 1 sessions. Yeah, no, we did like that, yeah? great times. We did sessions and off to Paris to do gigs in Europe and things like that. So, it really took off for us, you know, and we eventually signed to Chrysalis Records. So. And amazing because you were like number one in the indie charts and yeah. things as well, weren't you? So really- 
really successful. Yeah, no, we did all right. Yeah. Can't complain. So, <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of where my musical, how I kind of got in, into music and obviously signing at Chrysalis, we were at a certain level and, and things like that. But I mean, that all sadly sort of went at the end of the 80s. And it's funny, but the guy that used to roadie for us was roadieing for Oasis. I think I was back Brick Lane and it was like February and it's snowing and raining and walls were falling over and, it's, and you think, let's go home. Okay. You know, sort of thing. And I went home and I pressed my answer machine and he goes, do you fancy coming to America with Oasis for a couple of months? Or a month, whatever. And I, no, right, like, I'll go back. I didn't even tell the wife, I just went, I'm away for a month. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your job then? So what, what did you have so to do? So it's kind of like looking after Tony McCarroll and Gwigs. So I just looked upon myself as like just a roadie sort of thing. So yeah. the tech thing it's a bit American but that's kind of came in later so yeah I had six years with Oasis which is where I met Paul and how much of that was having to look after like Liam's tambourines and things like that is yeah we did a bit of that? Liam's tambourines we, see, I mean- <laughs> we used to do this thing like with Liam because we th- I used to have like these little silver stars and, and if it lasted a gig, put a star on it like the fighter pilots used to do in World War Two. <laughs> so if anybody's got a tambourine that they throw and it's got three stars, that means it's done three gigs. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> How far would it be the longest? Who's got no, the longest one? I mean, at first we used to have the same tambourine, didn't we? But when the money came in, we used to have a box full of them. <laughs> we used to have their own, own flight case. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Oasis link then led to Paul. Is that how it worked? It's funny. Um, when Alan White joined Oasis, I was looking after Alan White and Gwigs and we were on the festival doing some summer festivals in Europe and Whitey threw out about four pairs of sticks and I'm thinking I've no sticks where am I going to get some sticks from so he's going don't worry we're doing the same festival as our Steve so Dodge will give you some his, his tech will give you some so of course Dodge wound me up going oh no I've no sticks but. so we, we got some sticks off Steve so when we met the Weller crew then Right. Sort of night before, and we had a bit of a laugh and a drink and everything like you do. I'd met Paul earlier, but then of course I met him and the, his current band then and, and everybody else. Nice. Okay. And was it then when Oasis kind of imploded on itself that you moved over? Or I'm trying to think of the It was times. kind of a funny thing. It's, it's like we went to France to do Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. I was kind of doing all the running around, getting gear and things like that and picking things up. And I went to France to get something or give, take something. And, and I heard that Bonehead had left. He'd had an argument with Noel and that he'd gone. That was it. I think Quiggs had finished recording what he was doing and he'd gone home. So when I finally got back to England, I went to see Quiggs and Quiggs and that's it. I'm out. I said, well, does, does the band know? He says, well, I've told Marcus and that. So it wasn't until, this was like, I don't know, probably October. It wasn't until December that they found out that Quiggs had left and then it was all funny scenario of getting a bass player they were like auditioning bass players and then Andy Bell turned up but that's when they kind of cut the crew accordingly because up until then everybody had had one person they got me a visa to go to America but I never went so in some respects I was losing that gig wasn't brilliant but it kind of worked out better for me because from there I went to work with Cults Club Ocean Colour Scene and then eventually sort of landed with Paul. And joining Paul was, what, 99? Would that be right? Yeah, around about 99, I was doing a, it's funny, Dodge said, oh, I'm going to go do Oasis, so we need you to come and do Steve on some well dates to stand in for me. So I came down to the barn, met John and Kenny, who I kind of knew anyway, you know, through gigs and things. And I didn't bring anything with me. I thought I was just basically coming down, seeing them, seeing what crack was, and then going back to Brian with Dodge, having night Brian and coming home. And John just went, well, if we need you, then we better get your tell, aren't we? So I ended up staying four days and then did most of the rehearsals. I had a little tour with Cults Club in Australia, which John went, well, you better come back after that. <laughs> well, I will do, John. Don't worry about that. <laughs> and I did that tour up until October. Dodge came back. And then I was kind of on Ocean Colour Scene. I was booked to do this tour in, I think it was the October, and Paul's then guitar tech kind of left. They were doing an acoustic tour and Dodge stood in on that and Kenny just said to me, 
you do guitars, don't you? So I went, if it means keeping my job, Kenny, yes, I do. <laughs> I do now. So before you were like drum tech, would that be right? I was kind of like drum tech, yeah, yeah, drums, keys sort of thing. And who's Dodge? Give us, tell us who Dodge is. Dodge worked for Paul for a long time. He worked for the PA that they used to have. And then he was Steve White's drum tech and then eventually Alan White's drum techs. And, and who is, does Dodge have an actual name? <laughs> yeah, it's, Roger, keep... it's Roger Aspinall. <laughs> okay, Roger. Trying to keep up with all so the So now he works with me on Cults Club, so it's Roger and Dodge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> love it. <laughs> so with Paul, you're really you're right in the thick of it then from I'm trying to think album wise what's happened so Days of Speed tours happened is it the acoustic tour and we're, yeah, now, we're, we're now into it started doing it just started um, Studio 150 so then when I took over looking after Paul I don't think I went home for five years because he obviously used to be touring and guesting with somebody and recording and things like that so Studio 50 was probably the first album that I worked on where I used to drive the gear over to Amsterdam stay there then drive drive the gear back when that finished I've heard that Amsterdam and this has come from interviews with Paul but that was pretty messy right it, that was, I mean, it was interesting because these were times when the, the band were drinking and yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> we, all, we all were yeah it was a good old time Amsterdam's a great place and we, yeah. we met some great people there and we, it was just I mean the sessions were great they worked hard but we had to be out of the studio by a certain time so then it used to be like to a, a restaurant or a bar and then it'd get to early hours of the morning and it'd be like shall we stay out or shall we go to bed I'm thinking probably best to go to bed now because we're back in it <laughs> tomorrow so yeah yeah no it's a great time there's some funny stories obviously from there but like Steve White setting himself on fire next to a candle <laughs> <laughs> we're in a bar and White is leant against this candle and his jacket starts to go up and Paul's going you're on fire mate and Steve White oh thanks man <laughs> <laughs> no you are you're on fire <laughs> Paul's talks about that time being kind of like almost like reinvigorating doing the covers album enabled him to take stock and kind of you know, come back then with As Is Now which was a brilliant album but around that time the band really changed so Steve White moves on and we've got the new band who we are pretty much the same band in, in, in with us nowadays as well aren't they so really well really up changing. until As Is Now it used to be Steve Craddock and Damon and, and Whitey and Seamus Began on keys and that band did Studio 150 and like Paul's said they approached the songs then as if they were their own songs so they're doing their versions of, of cover versions and as is now was like a completely different thing we spent a lot of time at Music Bank rehearsing songs and then went to Wheeler End to do them where we kind of did them more in a live type thing and we brought Yuri over from Amsterdam who engineered Studio 150 to do it as well we tried one or two studios but we ended up at Wheeler End and it seemed that seemed to work funny enough I had that album on yesterday I've not listened to that album for a while and it's, it's a really great album like songs like Pan and Pebble and the Boy and, and then you, you forget got, don't you there's so yeah. many albums yeah yeah because you're listening to the new stuff all the time and like, there's so much coming through all the time but I was like and then Floorboys Up and um, Come On, Let's Go. And I was like, this is a great album. But maybe it didn't land as well as Paul would want it at the time. Well, I suppose it's what's around at the time as well, isn't it? It's like any musician, if you, you, you do your work and you put it out, if you put it out when there's lots of competition, then sometimes albums do get lost unnecessarily. Mm. I mean, it's got a pretty hardcore following. So, it, you know, everybody who was waiting for it would have bought it, I suppose. And around that time, you're going, I mean, you're going all over the world. So we're talking about the States. We're talking like V Festival. There were gigs in Japan, Royal Albert Hall and stuff like that. These amazing venues. Have you got any favourites where you go and go, actually, that's somewhere I, I love to go. I love going there. No, I've done them that many times now. It, it, you tend to, um, well, I suppose, get blasey about it. When you do somewhere for the first time, like with Oasis, when we did um, Earl's Court, and you look at this massive building, and you're thinking, God, are we going to fill this? And the second time when you do it, you think, don't look as big this time for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. That's how I sort of see it. Do you now see it as like you like the venue because it's easier to load in and load out? <laughs> are those the ones, those little, are the ones you like more? <laughs> listen, the, the, the gigs that are usually a pain in the ass are the ones that 
he loves and so do the audience. So like the 100 Club, yeah, we'll just bring that Hammond down the stairs again, shall we? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's like the ones that allow it, like Webster Hall in New York, and we'll just take everything up 15 flights of steps, shall we? Because it's a lift. So, you know, <laughs> from that point of view, you're you know, you, you're thinking... <laughs> We just want to do an acoustic set tonight, mate. Um, Paradiso, we talked about Amsterdam. Paradiso is one that comes up as a great venue a lot as well. From Rotterdam. Yeah, there's some good little venues in Amsterdam, really. Paradiso is a good venue, but there's a bigger venue just on the outskirts, which is quite good. I mean, good venues are down to the audience, I think, and it's how they sort of receive you. We're talking about that. We have to talk about 2021 and the fact that after the horrors that we've kind of been through in the past couple of years, you were back on the road, finally. The band, back together, back on the road, back doing live music. How did that feel? Let's talk about those first few nights of that tour and, and the rehearsals and stuff, but how did that feel actually getting back out there to live audiences? Rehearsals were good because rehearsals were just like an oasis in, in a pandemic and it was kind of normal down here because we were all in a bubble. It was just normal, but once we got out on the road, it was kind of like touring under an invisible restriction, if you know what I mean, because the first few dates were kind of all right and most of the audience were masked for whatever reason and you kind of forget them what's actually going on but obviously we lost two crew guys to covid early doors which kind of give everybody a bit of a wake-up call so, and then obviously one of the band went down last week and we finished three days early just mm -hmm. as i thought we were going to do it yeah it's so but so, every so band close, you know right? you, you, you know like genesis they kept themselves as tight as they could and they lost the tour you know other people have lost tours and things and it's just weird times really it's mm -hmm. like Time stood still for two years. That first night in Coventry, and actually the first few nights, that set list was massive, wasn't it? There were like 34 songs on that set list. You would normally learn about 70 in rehearsals. Yeah. Wow. Every time we do the same thing, it's like the band will get 40 songs or 50 songs to learn. They'll start learning and then somebody will go, yeah, but what about floorboards? We don't put that in our, what about so-and-so? And what about this? You know, it's difficult to choose a set. And you're never going to please everybody, are you? You know, you, you, you see on social media, people, no, I didn't play this and I didn't play that. Oh, he's played that one again. Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a massive, I mean, it was like two hours, 45 minutes, I think, those first Originally couple days. Yeah, we had to start half past eight to get it all in. But when we lost the monitor guy, we stopped doing the acoustic set and it's still a two and a bit hour set. And I think it was probably one of the better sets he's done because he just used to fly. At a certain point, you think, you know, we've done it nearly. So the encore just used to go like in, in yeah. two minutes. Obviously it wasn't, but it did seem like it. What was the feeling like? Take us onto the tour bus, the first night, Coventry, yeah, that first gig. What's the feeling behind the scenes for you all? I mean, itching to get back at it, I would guess. But Yeah, I think we are, but some of the older crew were a bit apprehensive and, you know, it needs most. A lot of people have gone two years without a lot of money, so they were glad to be back earning. And I think still it was good, but it wasn't quite right, if you know what I mean. It's yeah, like... Right. But then again, sort of touring now is quite different, whether it's an age thing or not, I don't know, but we, it's not as... Um, not as chaotic as it used to be, shall we say. Which <laughs> is probably a good thing, right? <laughs> I don't know, because we've had some really good times. When we used to rehearse at London and stay in the K-West, there was obviously a big social side after we'd finished rehearsing, so it was like a, a good carry-on. We met a lot of people, had some good friends, but it's all it's all times and places. It, it goes, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, that's that period, then you go into another period. And talk me through the guitars. So if we talk about... Wellers, because you're Paul Wellers' guitar. So I'm guessing Craddock has his own guy. Does he have some se separate? Yeah, no, Steve's got all his own guitars. Paul's got, basically Paul has three guitars, which he's always used live, which is the Epiphone Casino, his SG and his Telecaster. And we've got a spare of each of them. On this tour, he's played a lot of acoustic. Um, we got a deal with Guild about 12 years ago, which is why he doesn't play the famous J45 anymore. There was, I think, Taylor had sent some guitars down and Guild had sent some down and somebody else and... He picked the guild up and he loved it from a minute. He picked it up and he's, that's been his main acoustic ever since. If we take the set list of Barrowlands as an example, right? So you've got White Sky, which you open with, which is a banging tune to open any gig, yeah. I have to say. Oh my God, just like full on in your face. Take us through the rest of the set list. White Sky, 
straight into Cosmic on the main Epiphone, Peacock on the SG, Telecaster for, sh- for that style council tune. Yeah, my ever-changing moods, and then hung up. Then he goes on the piano for Sans Pan, comes back to the acoustic for the next few, Capoed acoustic for Treasure, and then he's onto the piano then for Broken Stones, but then it's Changing Man, Boston on the spare Epiphone, back onto the piano for three. And then Clouds on the SG, Wildwood on the acoustic, Capode onto the spared Epiphone for Brushed, and then finishing on the SG. Well done. Well remembered. And then the Encores, <laughs> Epiphone, Acoustic, Piano, Entertainment, Capode Acoustic, and finish it with a Blonde Telly. I mean, that sounds exhausting from a roadie point of view. That's a lot of getting up and down again. <laughs> it is, but sometimes you've got gigs like that. Not the gigs track, but it's like anything. When you're working, you're working, it goes, doesn't it? Yeah. And that set did seem to go really fast. That has been a case I've taken the wrong guitar out. <laughs> oh really? So what's that? so when he's he's playing obviously, you're what are you doing at that moment? Are you are you trying to enjoy it but also in no, mind of when you're gonna swap I, over I, the guitar next or what? Once he's out there, you've got to be keeping an eye on him to make sure he's all right, nothing's going wrong. You try to tune the next guitar for the next thing, make sure that's in tune. And it's just kinda like that. It's it's you know, you've got to keep your wits beside you. So you, are you always in his eye line then? Whereabouts Nine, are you still? 90% of the time I'm in his eye line, yeah. Right. I think he likes to know where I am in case anything does go wrong. Because there'll be times when I'm tuning and I, I'm not looking at him and drumstick will hit me. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's something wrong. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and what type of things go wrong then? Breaking strings is the obvious one, which he hasn't done a lot of, to be fair. Amps deciding not to work, another one. Just little things, you know, even just, it's funny, when, when he stopped drinking, we had an amp go down because he spilled his water on it. <laughs> <laughs> and you and and because of the way we had everything wired in, it took a few things out as well. So, but you, you couldn't make that sort of thing up, could you? It's like he's, we used to have a piano that used to get drunk a lot of times and stop working, and you spray it with cleaner and try it out, and the next day it'd work until Jack Daniels got spilled on it again, and it won't work. And <laughs> you talk about this this COVID bubble that you had to create, but I guess in a way, again, Kenny Wheeler talks about this as well. There's always a bubble in a sense. So pre-COVID, there's always like a tour bubble in a way where you're you guys are so closely tight knit. It's what happens on tour stays on tour, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, doubt. It depends on what type of tour. If you're doing smaller venues and you've got one bus with crew on, it's a tight sort of thing. There's a bit of banter between departments and things like that. When you do the arenas and the crews get bigger and you maybe two or three crew buses, you don't necessarily know everybody who's on that tour. So that does get a little bit like it's a job. So, And other types of tours that really stand out? It's when you get to do like, like I've done the Fox Theatre in America and you do like we did the, the one in Harlem and places like, that you've read about. I mean, personally for me, when we did um, when we did the 100 Club with the Skeletal Family or the Marquee, to me, that was a highlight because you've seen everybody who's done the Marquee and you think, yeah, I'm doing it now as well. So. Those really iconic venues. When you think about everything that goes into a tour, I mean, it's bloody expensive to tour, isn't it? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it's unbelievable. And it doesn't get any cheaper either, especially after Brexit as well. That's made it a lot harder to tour. problem with Brexit is no one to get too politically. So a lot of people void for it who don't really travel. And a lot of older people who maybe thought we had better times when I was younger. Maybe you did, but we just finished World War Two, so we're kind of rebuilding the world, weren't we? So yeah. there's obviously a bit of work around then, <laughs> filling bomb holes in and building buildings, but it is a lot difficult. It's a lot harder to even think about. I mean, even my little band, Skeletal Families, you've got to now think about carnies and tax and withholding tax and things like that. So it just make it a lot harder, and a lot of bands just won't be able to afford to do it. Organising a tour and playing lives hard enough already without all that kind well, of stuff. Well, this yeah. is it, and you know, there's going to be COVID restrictions 
as well, which might affect us. So it affects who, who you can take and who you can't take. And not easy. If you join this band, you have a lot of songs to learn, so it doesn't take two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Talk me through the bit on stage then. So Paul's, we've started the gig, we're live, Paul's playing the guitar, you're tuning up the next one. That swap over, so he hands you he hands you the guitar that he's finished with, barely gives you a second glance, I've noticed sometimes, you know what I mean? It's oh, like, a little, <laughs> thank you, thank yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> Straight on. Um, no, sometimes I'll go, have you seen front row or whatever, or have you seen that? Oh dear, second point row stuff row. out. And then you're straight on to your focus again on what the yeah, next Yeah, I mean, to is. be fair, Paul's focus as well. Paul's sort of, he's in the zone, you know, he's doing his bit. And, yeah. So there are times when I was at the other week, I was at Villagers in London at the Roundhouse, and you popped up with Paul, I saw you on the stage yeah. coming on. So there are times when if Paul's performing, like he's done gigs with Madness recently and things like that, where you'll go along and be his yeah, I mean, early, early, for those. early days, I used to go everywhere because a lot of times I'd be driving him all and we'd do a lot of guesting where we'd turn up with an amp and a guitar and I'd, you know, I'd get it all set up for him to go on and do whatever he does. It's funny because with the villagers, he said, oh, bring me pedal board. When we got there, the guy from the village got like a little board with four pedals on. So I'm here with this big board with his pedal board. Paul goes, just put one pedal down. <laughs> <laughs> It's always too embarrassed to pull it. Well, it's not that. I think, I, think if, I think sometimes it feels it's a bit too rocky to have a big pedal. <laughs> there's a question, actually. I've got some, so we've got some questions from the fans as well, which we need to uh, make sure we do on this as well. So there's a couple about the pedals. Where was it? So Matt Sapsford. Uh, this is going to be a good one, Dan. Cue the rush of questions about pedal boards. Still running with just the Boss FC5, BD2 and RE20 question mark. I've no idea what that means. What's yeah, the actual pedals. Okay. He, has, he has a Wah Wah pedal, a Jim Dunlop crybaby. Wow, wow, pedal. The Boss RE20 Echo, Blues Driver 2, the full FZ5, and a TU3 tuner. And we've recently added a TC Electronic Spring Reverb. Now that sounds like gobbledygook to me, quite frankly. There's a man who doesn't understand this world at all. Um, what are all those things doing? <laughs> well, the wow is obviously going wow, wow, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, the RE20 is modelled on the old um, Roland Echo unit. He's got it on a setting that he likes and he can change the tempo and things. uses a lot on clouds. The BD just gives him a lift in certain solos and things. The fuzz he uses on various tunes. He got spring reverb for little bits in clouds, which he just wanted to sort of highlight. And obviously tuners for tuning. And Craddock's got a whole bunch of these as well. Whenever I watch Steve Craddock's Craddock... has got two boards with lots of things on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I've watched... I realise you're at Paul Wellegging in your front row and you realise two songs have passed by and I've just watched Steve Craddock because he's... I mean, A, is an incredible guitarist, but B, those pedals and what he's doing, you're like, ah, what the hell's coming out of that guitar? Yeah, no, he's, very, amazing, he's, he's very good with the pedals and he changes them constantly to suit whatever he's, he's doing on the songs. So he's got the RE20, he's also got Leslie Simulator, Compressor, EQ... Blues driver, overdrive, delays, you know, and Steve will change accordingly. You know, you'll see the set list and he'll change accordingly. The other question I always ask you is how you guys are passing the time when you're on tour. So there's obviously a lot of dead time. I mean, not so much for you because you, you, you and your team are lugging the gear in, lugging the gear out and stuff, but there's a lot of dead time, is there? It's funny with COVID, there hasn't been a lot of dead time because we were tending to get in the building, set up, get everything ready, do the line check, bit of maintenance or whatever. Then the band would be in for do the sound check. Once the sound check's done, because the support were going on early, you know, you were a bit more tuning up and then support are on, then it's change over, then the band are on and then before you know it, you're packing up. Right. I mean, the normal gigs, when you start going a little bit later, you, you get a bit of dead time where you can go on the bus or whatever. Some people do different things, like some people go to the pub or whatever, but with this, we didn't. Were you then straight into the next town? So at the end of the gig, you pack up, you get loaded up and you're yeah, off to the next place. Up, we're off. Yeah. Next gig. And what time are you getting to the hotels roughly then? We have a sleeper bus for like, we do three in a row and then on a day off, We'll get to somewhere about midday, hope the rooms are ready. If not, it's dump your bags and have a little walk or whatever. And then the next day it starts all over again. <laughs> all right. And how big are these buses then? These sleeper buses? Are yeah, they, the it, it the comes last one held 16 people. 
Right. So 16 bunks. But they've got everything on, you know, there's games and these days it's all hard drives in it and downloading and things. Yeah. Once upon a time it used to be cassette players and CD players and videos. Early doors of touring, there used to be a lot of staying up, drinking and doing whatever. And these days it tends to be a lot of people, it's a cup of tea in bed. <laughs> Is that an age thing or just a sign of well, the times? I think it's a sign of the times. I, I think the younger guys now don't seem to be as keen to have it like we did. I'm just not saying that's everybody, but you know, the people on who's toured with us. They've seen what it's done to you, like I think not. <laughs> well, probably, yeah. <clears throat> I'm only 21, I've had a hard life. <laughs> and it's just different. I think in general sort of life, like when I was in my early 20s, I used to live opposite the bolt makers and tea time, there's always a big crowd in drinking at tea time straight from work, where maybe it's still in the big cities, but you, f- you don't find that's as common these days and you don't find people doing it at dinner times as common as it used to be. There's lots of pubs closing because there's, there's, you know, there's no trade, is there? So I think the whole drinking thing's changing, I think. One thing somebody said to me was about the, at the time, at the time you were on tour, the Beatles get back, came on Disney Plus. And I'm guessing, and as Paul loves the Beatles so much, I mean, surely that must have been shown on the tour bus. Did you all get to watch that? It might have been on the band bus, but it certainly wasn't on ours. <laughs> he's, he's looking I horrified. The, I think the band were just talking about it constantly. I really, I love that. The fact that, because you would do, right? If I was, if I was on a bus with my, my family, my friends and the Paul Weller documentary came on, we'd be watching it. We'd be talking about it. It's a similar thing, right? But yeah, not on your bus. No way. No, just, um, there's very few films played on our bus, to be honest. Again, because a lot of people, some just have their own little iPads and go to bed and watch it or whatever, watch their own thing. But no, it was, I think. <laughs> We got the Bond film and we managed half of it before we fell asleep. (laughs) This is so not rock and roll, is it? This is not what I was expecting. I thought you were hardcore. Maybe a few years ago, it'd been a bit more interesting. Yeah. Well, Kenny Wheeler told me about the, um, the cards and the, um, and particularly when, you know, when John Weller was with us and God bless him, but that was pretty full on, was it? John did say to me when I started, would you want any cash or check? You want some cash? Play a bit of cards on the road. (laughs) And how did you do on that? I didn't play. I've, I've forewarned on that one. <laughs> yeah. That man could damage your wealth. <laughs> <laughs> what are your memories of John? We should talk about John. Well. John, great. I like John. John was good. He always got an answer off him. If he had any problems, he didn't mix his words. He told you straight. And I, he was just good. As he always said, we're not his manager. I'm his dad. And, you know, there's some good old stories about John because he's, he didn't, like I say, it's like definitely a no door, no show. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I've got a lot of fond memories of John, to be honest. Even before I joined the organisation, so to speak, and, from Oasis, we used to go see Paul a few times and he'd always bump into John and Kenny. That, um, I should have asked you really, the height of Britpop is what we're talking about now. I don't know that we, I don't know that we talked about Britpop at the time as a thing, but obviously the time when you were with Oasis was, I mean, that was amazing that time, wasn't it? You know, the British music then was at a real high. Again, yeah, well, there's Rich Vane. I think a lot of bands suffered for it because under normal circumstances, they'd probably sold more records and got, got better deals, but there's just so many good bands that, mm. you know, not everybody could be Oasis. For us, it was a great time, obviously. So, Were you with the band for Nebworth? Yeah. Yeah. Gave Robbie Williams a lift home. <laughs> I heard Martin McCutcheon was sick in Mick Hucknall's hair. That was my favourite story about that. Mick Hucknall went to the gig with the long dreads. Next The week after, he had very short hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, we met a few people, celebrities, shall we say. Interesting. People who wanted to hang around with the band. I should also ask you about the albums, because we're here at Black Barn. It would be remiss of me not to talk about the creative process and, and when they're creating that work. So when do you get involved? Because you're... Your role is not just on the roads. You're not just guitar tech there. You're involved here at the studio as well, are you? Yeah. The first album we did down here for me was 22 Dreams. And obviously I'd been to the band, but in those days we didn't, the gear wasn't kept here. We used to have a lockup in London. Paul had a couple of lockups in walking. Main part of the gear was in definitely the live things, 
was in London. And I think up until that point, he'd kind of used this studio more for demoing because, of course, back in those days, record companies would pay you to go to the Manor or Studio 150 or, mm. or whatever. And I think, I think that's when the business started changing. And I think Paul was out of a deal at the time, so it, he had a free reign, he had no pressure on him. And he said, right, we're just going to go down to the studio. So I picked him up in London and we came down. And I think he had four chords for a song. And at the end of the day, it was a song. Yeah, so we'd spent we had weeks, months down here doing Twenty Two Dreams. That was brilliant because it was one where the doors were open and you heard the birds singing on the on the oh, album was, and things like that. It, was a, it, was, it feels like it was a lovely time to, to for everybody well, it was, involved. It was yeah. just like any idea we. I mean, on um, try to get me to do God, which I did. Oh my God, no! So yeah. Steve Craddock had a go, and was, Steve Craddock had a go. I had a go, and then Aziz got to come and trumped it, didn't he? Oh, so you, there's a version of God with you I on somewhere, I, is there? I'm sure it was me, right down until Aziz coming. Oh bollocks, Aziz! Because <laughs> Paul's brief with me is like, read this, but just read it as yourself. Don't try and act it or do anything. Just be you. So yeah, Charles has got it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is. See, that's the thing. I was saying to somebody the other day about the fact that the if you're a Beatles fan, um, hearing Let It Be, the deluxe version that's now out with like eight different vinyls or something must be an absolute thrill. And I hope in years to come, we'll get these kind of things. We'll get 22 Dreams, the eight LP version, <laughs> and your version of God will be on there. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I think most of what, what we did went, went out, which is why it was a double album, really. Yeah. It's a brilliant, I love that. It's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant album. But then we should also talk about Wake Up The Nation, because you're on there playing bass. So we're doing a drum with her and Paul says, right, I'm going to try some 12-string. I sat at the desk, tuned the 12-string up and Paul just went, go on then. And I'm like, go on what? <laughs> I says, just play along to this. And Simon Dime was there and he goes, oh, it's in D-Rodge. So, so they played it and I'm just going, can I play it? So I just did the doon, 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 doon. Simon Dime's going, yeah, that's it. And Paul's going, you didn't nick it from anywhere, did you? I'm <laughs> like, so, no, it just came out, mate. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, so I got me a little bit, bit on a drum with her. Oh, brilliant. And I played on another track as well, but I can't remember. Charles knows what it is, but... Well, I've got a few lists. What were the other ones? Um, Sonic Kicks, you were on. Around the Lake. I mean, that was... This has come up on the podcast before, but those um, gigs around for Sonic Kicks was a real challenge as well, wasn't it? So they, so the fact they did the Roundhouse, they did the, the album from start to finish live, little break, acoustic set, little break, encore. But that was a real challenge by the sounds of things, playing that album from start to finish. How did that affect you as a tech on that? Me, it was just like a normal gig, but keyboard-wise, we did a lot of stuff that was on track, so they, they had to do a lot to click. So we had like Stan, who sort of mixed the album as as well. He came out and did the out, helped with the out front sort of noises and, and things. But yeah, for me, it was just like normal tune the guitars, make sure they're in tune. And same job as always. Same right? job as always, so to speak. I think um, the other thing I noticed was there's a time where your credits on album changes as well. So this was um, Saturn's Pattern. And I don't know if you know this, but it says Head Roadie and then it says Sorry Tech. So is there? it feels like there's a running gag or there's something going on between you. Where <clears> nah, it's just showing a, the title, right? Paul's like, what's all this tech business? You're a roadie, are you? <laughs> he always calls me his guitar roadie. Don't bother me whether I'm a guitar roadie or a tech. <clears throat> it's the American thing, all this tech business. And let's talk through the latest stuff as well. So the past few years, 2018 to now, we've had, well, three, four albums. What's it like when there's that much productivity, there's that much new stuff coming out of the man and being part of that mix and seeing all that happen? You can't stop him, can you? It's like with a lockdown, it's like, oh, I might as well do another album. Whereas most people have thought, I'll I'll have a bit of a rest and sit on my arse and not do an awful lot. He's back writing songs. I don't think he can sit still, to be honest. I mean, kids keep him busy these days, you know, he's got a young family. But I think he'll always make music. I think... Now he's, he's kind of loves this place. And I think he'll always, even if the gigs get less, I think he'll always be down here making music. I mean, the business has changed so much for all of us that when you've been in it as long as Paul, it's, it's hard, probably hard to get your head around how it is now and 
you're not getting anything for your two pence for your streams or whatever and mm. things like that. And I think a lot of older musicians who were used to getting advances and decent royalties are just thinking, what's all this? And I've got to say, I don't know how young bands doing. It's never been great for, unless you're su really successful, the music business and, and things. So, but it just seems a lot harder. It's a lot easier, but a lot harder. You know, you can record a lot easier, you can put things out a lot easier, but to get noticed and pull your head above the crowd is a lot harder. Yeah. And to make any money out of that as well. Yeah. So it's like not nine you impossible know. at all. We used to get it in Skeleton Family, you know, you're selling out. Go, what do you mean selling out? You work for a bank, you're on 40 grand a year. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's like we're still signing on. Yeah. How are we selling out? Talk to me about Skeletal Family because you're back and there's been a few iterations. So after that kind of implosion back in 80, the late 80s, there's a bit of a break to say the least. And then you came back together. Well, I, do, I think when we finally split up in the late 80s, I don't think anybody, Amory was doing the ghost dance thing. And I don't think we ever thought we'd ever get back together but thanks to the good old internet put up like a respective page and we got offered gigs so I thought let's, let's give it a go so Amory couldn't do it at that time so we've, we've had various singers and to me now it's just great to be to be doing it again there was an album that Paul and Steve got, got involved with as well wasn't there yeah we did like an Amory album which was based still Skeleton Family basically and because I was back playing we did it down here and Steve said yeah I'll do a bit keyboard for you and Paul Paul was pretty good because we spent an all afternoon and if Charles hadn't had gone to the dentist we'd have got a lot more done as well <laughs> Yeah, he had to, we had to do something, but Paul was like, yeah, let's do this, let's do this. So it was pretty good. That must be amazing, having like the, the man playing on your own stuff as well, on your own material. Really yeah, no, cool. it was pretty good. About to yeah. see. How would you describe the music? Because I've seen it described, you mentioned like post-punk and there's been like goth rock and death rock, oh, and, like, which is bollocks, quite frankly. Is. I don't know what goth any of that, pop now. I don't know what any of that means because it's actually, when you when you hear those words, you think, my God, this is going to be really heavy and well, think, kill my ears, but yeah, it's not I this think, at all. It's really melodic. It's lovely. I think people have got to put labels on things and to be fair, you can't sell a tin of beans in a silver, in a thing yeah. you've got, people have got to know roughly where, you, where you're coming from. So the whole goth thing back in the 80s was like, we're not a goth band. Now it's, we're a goth band. <laughs> But you're recording again, new material, new vocalist, yeah, new, new singer. new vocalist, new, new material. Probably the best stuff we've ever done, to be honest. And we're just happy to be back making music and we'll put it out there like everybody else does and hope it's successful. Well, good luck with that. And when will we hear that? When's it? I know Charles is doing I'm some I'm hoping that Mr. East pulls his finger out and he gets out in April. <laughs> okay, we'll look forward <laughs> to that. And he's doing a very good job, I must say. Well, I've heard a few bits here today. Yeah, sounding good. But again, like like melody, rhythm, yeah. like some tunes, right? It's not yeah. like, yeah, it's it's not what you would expect if you just were to read the blurb, is I guess the yeah. point. Now, if we bring it back to Paul and we talk about live performance, at the time of recording, it's December 2021. And earlier this year, we had that very special gig at the Barbican. At the time of recording, we're on the eve of the album being released, Orchestrated Songbook, which is that gig, essentially. What was that like? Because that must as a guitar tech. How involved were you in that one? Not as much as normal, to be honest, because he did a lot of singing and not a lot of guitar playing. Yeah, because there were times when, <laughs> yeah, he wasn't even playing the guitar. Steve Craddock played a bit yeah. more, didn't he? But there were times where it was just him, his vocal and the orchestra. The whole thing was, how can I describe it? I think Paul, instead of taking control, Trollers such, he let Jules do most of the arranging and things. Obviously, Paul liked, liked what he did, otherwise he wouldn't have done it. But yeah, even Paul and Steve were times where in rehearsals they'd be talking to him and saying, should we do it this way or, or do it that way? And I think it was a mutual thing. Paul had heard stuff that Jules had done and Jules obviously was a fellow Weller fan. So I think it kind of worked. And it's, it's always funny working with orchestras because it's nine to five to some of them. And so some of them were like really pleased Paul was there and others were just like doing the knitting and looking. <laughs> <laughs> They do so many that they're probably well, just like, it's another guy. We had it on Cults Club. We did um, 
Hollywood Bowl, same thing, orchestra to cult club hits. After the gig, they're like packing up. It's just another day at the office for them. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's really special for everybody else because there's an orchestra and that, but they're just, you know, what are you doing tomorrow then? Second kids out then? Oh yeah, yeah. Because there was also the orchestra with Hannah Peel a a couple of years back before that with the other aspects gigs, the Royal Festival Hall. And again, was that one where your involvement was very minimal because I was out with Culture Club at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's Boy George like then? Because Boy George was on the Barbican gig as well. So there's a nice kind of crossing of your yeah, worlds. Yeah, no, right? Boy George is all right. I mean, I like George because he's Boy George. Isn't he? When he wants to be Boy George, he's Boy George. And even when, when he's good, he's, he's good. He wanted him to do a track on one album that, that never happened. And then I can't remember what album it was, but it came down and did. And the, the a Kind Revolution did, yeah. did ones here. That, yeah, yeah. That, was, that was great. And that worked. So yeah. It just came down, sat in there. It's funny because we were filming it and George is like, oh, you should have said I'd have put my makeup on. <laughs> so no cameras. <laughs> Some more questions from the fans. Joe Nellis, ask him if he's ever had a blasting from Paul Weller and what for. The poor guitar techs usually get the brunt of things. Yes, and I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, there has been a bollock here. Yeah, of course there's. I mean, it's like any working relationship. If you, if you make a mistake or you... He's not happy with you. He'll tell you. Simon, I used to play football with him many moons ago and still have a copy of his Sunday League football book. Simon, which Simon? I thought God's surname. That's correct. I did write a book about the Sunday League. Did you? In Keithley in 19, whenever it was. And I used to play for the Boltmakers Arms and Morton what, Village. What position did you play? I used to be goalkeeper and then right back or midfield. He says, can you ask him if he ever took Paul Weller out around Keeley, and if so, where? No, we've not had that chance yet. Whenever he ventures north, it's to do gigs. <laughs> I tell a lie, he did play Keithley Victoria Hall for me. Did he? Yeah, in the days when, um, when John was alive. It was one of the first tours that I did, and the first night was Glasgow. So I said to John, I said, do you want to do a warm-up gig halfway up for cash? And John was, yeah, yeah we can do that. And I said to Paul, you know, do you up for it? And he said, yeah. So first, first day on that tour was Keithley. Hall. And it's funny because the jam was supposed to play there in 78 and they didn't for whatever reason. So That's brilliant. How much notice did you give people that this gig was happening? Was it a last minute thing? Or? It was really weird because the original tour, Paul lost his voice, so he got postponed twice. And I think the original date was November. And we eventually did it in February and it sold out in about two seconds. The venue only holds like 600 people, so that just went like that. And you worked it as well as being part of... The experience. I was a promoter and the guitar tech that night. Yeah, brilliant. I love it's it. funny because <laughs> I got my mate to sell tickets and he just had like a, a workwear shop, but he used to sell tickets for the gigs that I put on. And there's a picture of it, like a big long queue for these tickets for Weller. But it's like anything else. People are buy them and two minutes later, they're on bloody eBay for whatever. Yeah, yeah, price. yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, he says he also has a couple of more standard guitar questions. Uh, what type of strings and plectrums does Paul Weller prefer? Mr. Weller plays Fender Heavy plectrums and at the moment we're elixir strings 10 to 46 and what's the difference <laughs> this again this is me being an idiot <clears throat> well obviously but, plectrums get various thicknesses and paul okay. pref- prefers heavy which is a thicker plectrum he normally uses white ones so i can see them on his mic stand to know when he needs more and strings he was with Picato for years and years and years sort of same gauge 10 to 46 and they moved their operations somewhere else so we had a change. Um, he said also, pretty sure Roger would have been involved in getting Oasis to sponsor a pub football team, the Bolt Makers Arms in Keeley. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come about? I was talking to a girl from Adidas and I said, do you want to do a kit for my local football team as an Oasis sponsorship? And she said, yeah, we can do that. So I saw Noel, said to Noel, shall we do it? And he said, yeah, let's do it. And he said, we just, just before they were getting bigger. First game of that season, we had the cameras to, to film the lads in their new blue and white Oasis 
sponsored football kit. Oh my God. So the Oasis logo on the front yeah, of the yeah. shirt, yeah? Oh, brilliant. Noel was chairman that year for, <laughs> for two years. <laughs> I love that. Right. Wardy84, which is his favourite Paul Weller guitar solo? Um, one of my favourite songs is Peacock Soup. So I don't really have a favourite guitar solo as such. There's so many in there. It's like you could go down the list and go, yeah, that's all right. Then you think, oh no, well, that's better. Then that's better. So which guitar are you pulling out for the Peacock suit? The SG. That's a, I mean, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? So yes, where is it? It's in that box over there. <laughs> oh, hell. In the brown So box. near and yet so far, folks. The brown box. We ought to say as well, you mentioned like Paul has three favourite guitars. But here at Blackburn, there are what? 30 odd guitars probably something like that um, he's got quite an extensive not a massive collection he's, he's not a guitar man as like I've got to have hundreds of guitars the guitars he's got are the ones that he'll use you know we have a big Gibson sort of one that's suited to j- jazz thing that he uses occasionally but it's just guitar I mean in the studio he'll use sort of any guitar really the Dan Electro gets played a lot and with a Fox Teardrop that gets played obviously he'll still use his main ones from time to time but it's usually what, what guitar suits the job, so to speak, in recording. And how many of those kind of iconic ones still exist? So if you think about, immediately my head pops out Changing Man, the video of Changing Man, for instance. I've not seen the video of Changing Man, but I would imagine it's the Epiphone. And is that the same one that he's now still playing live on tour? Yeah, wow. Well, on this last tour, he did use a spare Epiphone a little bit more than normal. And I think I just more just to change as good as the rest. And then the other one is the Jam... The Wham guitar. That's still in there somewhere. Got Does that, that come out? That comes out for special really. guests to see no, rather than play. Really, very rarely use it playing wise. Okay, let's go to another question from the fans. Class one mod. Does Weller still own or play a Ricky? And if yes, has one been used on any recordings in the last few years? He still has four Rickenbackers, one a 12 string, one a Pete Townsend signature, and we don't really use Rickenbackers these days. 12 string guitar. So I was at the Declan O'Rourke gig the other week. Um, a, every time the guitar tech, I'm going to use that terminology, came on with the guitar, Declan would then spend ages fiddling about with it himself. So I, I felt like there was a bit missing between the two of them. But the 12 string guitar seemed like a massive pain in the ass. They had a massive pain in the ass. <laughs> it's just a sound, isn't it? The sound that they do. It's not easy to play, but people like them. Paul used to play a 12 string on Wildwood. So I think Craddock now normally plays a 12 string on Paul's six. Some sounds in it. From what I've heard on this podcast, the value of the fans was something that started out from the very beginning with John and with Paul with the jam and still seems to be the case now. Like the amount of things you'll see Paul's signing this, that and the other. I'm on Facebook. The amount of cards that have been signed for birthdays that have been sent. Yeah, there's, a, there's a pile in the office now waiting to be signed. Yeah, but he gives a shit, <laughs> I guess is the point. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's always, it's like any artist, the fans are not be all and end all, but you appreciate what they do. When you're somebody like Paul and Bowie and George, and you get your fans that are just nuts on you. There are a lot of the Weller fans by every edition of anything that he puts out in whatever form and, and things like that. And he does have a hardcore following. One of the things that came up a lot actually from fans was the gratitude in terms of you handing out set lists. So the first thing, obviously, the gig finishes, the band have done the encore, they've done the goodnights, they're off. Front row are all screaming at you to get the set list. And it's your job then to come and untape, you know, get rid of all the tape, clear off as quickly as you can, presuming is the aim, right? When you set up, lights will go in, sound will go in, wheel go in. It's all nice and things. When you're packing up, everybody's doing it at the same time. So there's a fight to get crew to help you and there's a fight to get your gear down before somebody walks on it or stands on it. So what I tend to do is if there's any spare set lists, I'll just drop it at the front of the stage for security to give them out. And then as I go along, if I've time, I'll just, because I tape them down. So by the time you've untaped it, other people have got things away. So if I've time, I'll do it. I normally with plectrums, if it's used and it's got a jagged edge, 
it can go to the audience. Being a Yorkshireman, if it hasn't been used, I'm using it next time. <laughs> Back in the box. Do you know how much them plectrums cost? <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I hadn't thought about the fact that the, the set list you're handing out is not necessarily Paul's one. It could be Steve's. It could be anybody else's. Kind of. All the set lists the same. Credit likes to have his guitars written down so he knows what he's getting. I don't write Paul's guitars on his. Do on mine. I have a friend who's got all my set lists from forever long and he's catalogued them all and put them all in nice order. I was going to do it, but I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> <clears throat> but for what purposes? Is this just something he's no, saving for Over you? the years, I can go and use that guitar, he's used nice. his guitar. And there'll be times when he's gone off-paste and he's, he's be changing money and he'll do something else. And I started off doing it and then I just... Over, over the years I was like oh, I can't be bothered the thing that strikes me about that is that trust so Paul doesn't have written down the guitars that he knows is, that he needs rather does he, he knows everything that he's going to use does he know right okay I mean there was one time when I I did literally go out give him the guitar got back looked at the guitar rack and I thought why is the Epiphone still there he should be playing that <laughs> looked on stage and he's got the SG so of course he looks over at me and gives me the Oh yeah, and I'm going. <laughs> so I'd just obviously gone like that. I grabbed what I thought was the thing. So. And did he play whatever the song was just with the wrong guitar? <laughs> I said to him, "Sorry, afterwards, and he said, ah, just professional rods, go on with it." <laughs> Andy Picken, I was at a gig in Vienna in 2017, and they tried to play the mid-set acoustic slot twice, and Paul's guitar failed both times. Rog got it both barrels on stage. Ask him for his favourite hotel room view. There's no favourite hotels. I keep putting pictures up because I think. Nine times that turns a brick wall with a load of fans on it. <laughs> um, I can't remember that Vienna gig. Could have done. See, once upon a time, I got him to use a, a wireless guitar system on the acoustics, purely and simply because when I do a guitar change, it's electric to acoustic. There's wires everywhere. So when it's a wireless, there's a straight change. Mm. So I can take the electric and plug it out. So one tour, I decided not to use a wireless anymore. And that's the one tour where everything seemed to go wrong with the acoustic guitar. And I think a lot of it's because the way we route things, when you set up, it's all good. But then during changeovers, stuff gets dropped on them and things like that. There were certain times when it worked fine and then it didn't work fine. So you've obviously got to sort it out. Oh, and that's in the, fran in the frantic moments of a live performance. Yeah. This is you having to figure out what the, what the hell's going on. Yeah, so whilst I get it. I mean, he's, he's wanting to do his, his thing and it's just not working. He's not happy, so... I'm there, I make it work, so... Yeah. I must have seen this happen, but are there bits where you're like having to crawl around on the stage on your hands and knees figuring out what's going on while they're playing on? Um, depends how quick I can change, sort it out. Um, his pedal board went down once in Newcastle and he took the band off, so I had to sort that board out to 2,000 Geordie's slow hand clapping. Because <laughs> <laughs> the drummer's girlfriend sat on the spares box. <laughs> there is times like that. I mean, like Teenage Cancer Trust Roll, Albert Hall. His amp has a fuse inside and it's only ever done this three times in 20 odd years, but it did it on the first song of the Albert Hall. And so I'm looking at the amp, I'm going, well, everything's lit up. And he's going, so that didn't go down too well. And what had gone, was that, and how did you fix it? What was that? I just put the spare up, but he'd done it once before and I, and I knew he'd done it. So I was able to take it apart, put, redo the fuse. He never even knew anything gone wrong. He did it in rehearsals down here. We just had the amp serviced and he's playing in there. And next to it's not working. All the lights are on and he's thinking the worst. I'm going, don't worry, it's, it's only a fuse. Because I didn't have that fuse, did I? <laughs> but you've what got to kind of sort of think what, what could go wrong and sort of things to solve it. Hopefully I do enough to with the guitar so they don't go wrong. There was a tour where the acoustics seemed to be going down left, right and centre sort of thing. So that, that wasn't a good tour. <laughs> Neil G, I'd ask him that when he's tuning up that treasured Gibson SG that we've heard quite a bit about on this podcast, does he ever have a little pause to take in the fact that he's actually holding onto a guitar that has played on so many iconic songs and gigs? 
No. <laughs> I'm just concentrating on getting it in tune and getting it to him. Yeah, not giving him the wrong one. Not giving the wrong one. Uh, could you also ask if I could borrow it just for an hour? <laughs> yeah, join the queue. Yeah. Are there any guitars here that have come from other people as gifts to Paul? That's a good question, actually. There's um, Noel Gallagher's recent signature acoustic. Noel gave him one, so that's should be down here unless he kept it because he was on their band bus and there's a Pete Townsend signature it's normally Paul giving people guitars rather than the other way around he give his red casino to Luke from the Rifles he give the black Gibson acoustic to Corin Bailey Ray he give the white Strat to one of the lads from the White Room I think he likes to encourage younger you know up and coming musicians and if, if he's not using it you know there's times when he gives stuff when you think I wanted that <laughs> We should publish a list of the ones you want with this podcast. Well, we I have case. a list of all the guitars and we go through every now and then go, gone, gone. He sold a couple recently as well, which he wasn't, wasn't using. When he does sell things, he sells things as they are. He's not wanting to put his name onto it to get any extra money and things like that. I noticed one thing, the guitar cases, they've all got like stickers on and they've also got a date on, which isn't a date that's relevant to now. It's like two, three years ago. Is that when you do like the cataloging and working out what's here and what's yeah, I mean, it's, Yeah, Bill and myself went through like, like with them there, in his computer, it was number 20 in the day we did it. I normally just have what it is and whose it is, blonde telly, blue telly. But Bill's got a database. Yeah, so Bill's can... got a big database with right. everything in it. Yeah, and what, and you're taking out stuff for all of the band, presumably. This is not just you going taking out um, Paul's kit? The, or... back, the back line that's used on Paul Weller gigs is owned mainly by Paul. We have a Natal drum kit, which Ben plays, which is loaned to us by Natal. People like Roland and Korg obviously help us out with loaners when we need backups for certain things. Yeah, mainly everything's everything's Paul's. Ashdown have recently done the bass stuff, so they've loaned us a, a rig. Fender did it previously, but they're not making them amps anymore, so it's hard to get them serviced. And presumably then Steve's team, Steve Craddock's team, are taking his guitars. Steve brings his own guitars, but the amps are loaners from Blackstar, who, who do look after Steve. They did the grills, the Peter Blake grills for him. This has been so great, Roger, I have to say. It's been so lovely to spend time here at Black Barn. What do you think special about this studio? I don't know, because it used to be a commercial studio before Paul bought it. You know, and there's a lot of people recorded here like Mannix and, and people like that. But having recorded here myself, I don't know, it's just like a good vibe, in it? But everybody who comes seems to just like the vibe that it gives. You mentioned about giving away stuff. There was a story I read the other day about um, some mates of yours, I think it's Loafers. Can you give them, he's given away a piano, hasn't he? Basically, we had a piano where that jukebox is there and it was like, just get rid of it. So I knew Mark at Loafers have it. It was a bit over the moon, really. <laughs> this is um, Loafers in, where is it? Halifax. Halifax it's a record yeah. shop, yeah? Is it a record shop and cafe or something? Is that right? Or yeah, record shop and cafe, yeah. Yeah, so hired to those guys. But yeah, so imagine, so Paul just decides, doesn't want the piano, get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, so I thought, I know somebody will have it. And sure enough, he did, but it's was, it was funny, his reaction with it. Because he came down to pick you up and he's, see, for me, I'm, I'm probably just a bit blase because the only person I've really had butterflies in my legs got a jelly is when I met David Bowie. But other than that, you know, we week before I was like talking to Madonna or whoever it's, it, to me it don't bother me I mean even when I first met Paul it was just like I'm sat at a table in a hotel I'm going there's Quiggs there's Noel there's Liam there's, well, there's Paul Weller there you know I knew he was and every, everything but so when people meet people that we, I just they're just normal to me I, I mean I get it when they go oh I can't believe I'm here and all this sort of thing so I do get it but it's, it's we just take it for granted really I suppose yeah and I suppose it's, at the end of the day he's just a person right it's just yeah like, no end of the day well, you get people who go, do you talk to him? I go, no, I go, do you want that? <laughs> I put it through his interpreter. Of course we talk to him. <laughs> but then again, you get American acts and their tour managers going, don't look at the artist. 
yeah. speak to the artist. So, you know, Paul's not like that. But you guys are like having curries together down at the Ripley, you know, curry yeah, garden yeah, and no, all that, yes, right? Yeah, no. Well, it's like when we did the um, the villagers thing. We just had a walk in the Camden. Me, Paul, and Jess went down to um, what was that mod shop that he goes to? Mod father, yeah. Mod father, yeah. Didn't interest me like, but <laughs> got to say that's the worst thing about working for Paul. Where just, he just can't give me any clothes. Uh, you get nothing. <laughs> get all these freebies that come down here. There's nothing for me. <laughs> I'll be lucky if there's anything in black. <laughs> <laughs> the mod thing is not it's past no, you no, by no. Paul's it? going like do you want anything I'm going no you're alright man <laughs> <laughs> I will say I have bought some Dr. Mine brogues and I'm thinking of buying some Dr. Mine loafers so he's like yeah you're coming over at last <laughs> <laughs> moving to the dark side when the 2021 tour started you posted on Facebook Bath the A-team, and then you had the three guitars, hashtags, <laughs> which I thought was great. Remind me again which guitars Paul takes on tour then. Three main guitars are his SG, the Epiphone Casino, and the Blonde Telly. He did used to favour the Blue Telly for, for a while, but it seems to be the Blonde one. So when the end of the tour came too soon, had to cancel three dates, I think it was, in the end, wasn't it? You guys must have been devastated, right? Yeah, because we were just so close to getting it done. You like look forward to tours and then before you know it, you've done them. It's already starting to, for me, personally, it's already starting to be really busy and it's going to be, well, what am I going to do because I've got this or I've got that or I've got this. It's all clashing, right, for you now? Is that right? Summertime looks like it's going to be a bit of a clash. Hopefully I can do the rehearsals in March and the April tour. It's good when it all fits, but it's just awkward when it doesn't. One of the things I really like as well is the, how a song will take on a new life on tour. So a song like um, That Pleasure off of Fat Pop, every iteration of that now sounds like a completely different tune, but it's well, such I think a great when, song. When he does songs, there's a, re- there's a recorded version, and then when they go out live, there's a live version. You'll find that Steve Craddock does different bits every night to certain things, and they'll go off sometimes when when the mood takes them. It must be a bit frustrating though as a bass player yourself that when you're here at Black Barn, Paul's bloody good on the bass as well, isn't he? So like if, they, yeah, if no, it was just is. like the few of you here, like Charles is here, you're here, and Paul, Paul can no, do the I bass think bits, When it comes he? to playing bass, I'm well down the queue. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine, I'll get my fuzz box out. <laughs> <laughs> that must be bloody annoying though. Croft is a great bass player. Josh, who's just stood in, he's a great bass player. Steve Craddock's a great bass player. You know, these are all sort of like musicians who are top of the game. When one thing I've noticed, they're all like what you would call these days like multi-instrumentalists, right? So they can play. Yeah, I mean, if, even ever- Ben, who's like a drummer and a genius on the electronic side of things, you know, he'll get up and have a go on bass and, you know, Tom's quite good. Tom can play bass, guitar, drums and whatever. So they are all sort of kind of real musicians or working musicians, what you want to call them. But very different these days as well in terms of the, like the younger bands, the younger artists and stuff. It seems, it seems like they're all less into carnage is what I can say. No, I think so. I think you're right. Definitely. And it's, and it's like I stage managed something in Bingley a few years ago and the young band come on and the kid was a bit like Ziggy Stardust and it, nowadays that just looks funny. It's, you know, I, I sort of appreciate what he, was, what he wanted to do. I think for other people, it's, it's, it's a bit yeah. it's done now, isn't it? And I do think this business lacks characters and people who do throw tellies out of windows and things. And the glide now on a bit of flat screen thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take you about three weeks to get down there. Because that's the thing, at least you can say when you talk about like Liam Gallagher and people like that, it's, you know, the, the, a front, that front man type person. Yeah, yeah. Type no, figure doesn't really Liam, exist, Liam, is it? Liam would be the same if he had 10 pence in his pocket. You know, money doesn't affect him. Liam's Liam. You know, you see what you get. But you do wonder where those where those great front men, the next great front men are going to come from, don't you? Yeah, I think everyone's a bit too polite these days. Probably chaos with thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Please. <laughs> 
Chaos with Manners. But a really great band, really tight crew. Um, everybody talks about the kind of the, the Weller family here at Black Bomb. Yeah, I mean, the, the people in the band are all good. It's just good, isn't it? Yeah. No egos either, right? They're- Not really, no. Everybody's sort of kind of on the ground. I mean, they've all got their own stuff as well, so it's, they're all busy when they're not busy. The tour bus and the tour experience is different now, though, in the sense that because everybody's got their internet, they've got their mobile phone, presumably there's a lot more where people are just doing their own thing on the tour yeah, bus. Yeah, no, and- absolutely. And I think, same with hotels, you don't need pay TV, you don't need to get ripped off on the phone. Everybody's got their own mobile and iPads and laptops and things. And first thing on anybody's lips now is like, what's the password for the Wi-Fi? <laughs> He was asked for something very different in mind here. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't involve electricity. Um, One other thing I should ask you, you talked about um, Paul being back on the road and um, I should ask you about Skeletal Family. What about you, live performance? We've no plans on touring. We just want to get this album finished and then start promoting it with a few videos and things because the Marie's left. A lot of people are big fans of hers. So every time you get a new singer, you're kind of proving yourself again. I mean, I personally think this is the best material we've done ever because I like to hook think that we keep progressing. In our scene, it's like any scene, there's a lot of people who just want to live in the past. So I can fully appreciate why Paul did split the jam up and I fully appreciate where he's coming from now, where he wants to do new music all the time. Yeah, and keep pushing forward. Cause, and even though there were greatest hits within the 2021 set list of Paul, we had quite a lot from Standing yeah. Road, for instance. There was a lot of new material, wasn't there? And Yeah, and I think his two albums that he couldn't play till now. I think if we hadn't have had the pandemic, we'd have done on Sunset, we'd have toured right up until now, and then he'd have started doing Fat Pop now, because we couldn't. And we should say, so if, so people who, in terms of your material, um, we've had a single with the new, the, the new singer so far, is that right? We've recorded 15 new tracks all down here with the lovable mysteries. And, and does Paul pop in? How does he feel? You mentioned about the kind of, there's no crossover with clothes. How does it, he feel about your music? It does. It does pop in from time to time if we're down, but the three or four recording sessions we've had recently, he's not been around. He's either been away or he's, he's not been here. But he's interested. You know, he really liked the first session we did. Wasn't too keen on the second and he thinks it's best stuff we've done. That'll do for me. Well, look, thank you so much, Roger, for your time. I have two final questions for you before you go. Number one, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam, The Style Council or Solo. What are you going to go with? So many in there. Peacock Soup. Oh, that is a great tune, isn't it? It's just so hard because like, it could be floorboards, it could be <laughs> eating rifles, you know what I mean? It could be, could be any of them sort of things. Did any of the songs on the 2021 tour surprise you in terms of the reaction they got? Not really, but I'm glad he did Brush because I've wanted him to do it for a while. That's great, isn't it? Yeah. He did that on the Forest Gigs, didn't he? Did he do that on the Forest Gigs? I, I think remember. he did. It was on the list and we didn't do it much. Yeah. My final question for you then is, purpose of this podcast is not least to meet amazing people like yourself who are connected with Paul, have amazing careers themselves as well and super talented, but it's to get that interview with Paul Weller that I never managed in my radio career. If it happens, and it has to happen here at Black Barn, I hope you agree, we have to be here at Black Barn talking with Mr. Weller. Uh, what should I talk to him about? We talk about music, a little bit of football, mainly music. Why are dressing black all the time and don't wear fair aisles? And we kind of same age, so we kind of grew up in the seventies. You know the same sort of things. Everything that were going on in the seventies, like can you remember them American Civil War bubblegum cards and, it's, and things like that? He does. Do you know what I mean? So because so it's that sort of thing. You know we can talk all day about. And we're a couple of old geezers talking about you know about what it used to be like in the day and all that sort of, sort of thing. Because you know, like I said, it's, it's massively different for him now to what he's what he does. And, yeah. I suppose in some respects he doesn't see the rewards that he used to do, which obviously isn't good in any any sort of thing. We're all the same. It's like yeah, you know, the whole world around streaming and and I saw him um, talking about this in the Times the other day doing an interview. And here at Blackburn, you've got all these amazing gold platinum discs of you know the Jam, the Star Council. Yeah, I mean, you look at the numbers there for two hundred fifty thousand yeah. for a single. If you sold a single now for two hundred fifty thousand, you'd be number one for a month. Yeah, or a year even. And it's not like the amount of time that's passed since that. It's not not. 
massive amounts, but it's just, it's completely different, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, over the last few years, especially the last, say, 10 years, it's escalated where things are changing more or less monthly. Music Week, the big music magazine with the charts in, now it's monthly because it's not needed weekly. Yeah. There's no sounds enemy and, and things now because everyone's got it on the internet. No music programs on TV because you've got YouTube. Mm. I mean, YouTube's a goldmine, isn't it, for, for certain things, but... That's all my kids watch is YouTube. Grown men playing computer games for kids and they, they'll watch that all day long. It's bizarre. I just can't get my head around oh, it. You mentioned football. Here at Blackburn, there's a Chelsea flag. So do you talk about, is Paul a proper Chelsea fan? I am. So is he? Yeah, no, it's, if that's his team, Chelsea. Back in the 70s, Chelsea was his team. He's probably more into football now because one of the twins, is, I think it's Bowie's a big Liverpool fan and plays football and things so. So they've got that rivalry. Final question I should ask you. So obviously you're the guy who's in charge of the guitars. You mentioned fashion earlier on. Who's the guy who's in charge of the fashion? Where do, how do the suitcases, the bags, the suits, the clothes, where do, how do they travel around? Um, we have wardrobes for all the clothes. There's only one, one man in charge of fashion and he stands at the front and sings. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a lot of pressure. I don't know what's more valuable, the clothes or the guitars. <laughs> There is one person on the firm that can talk close to him and Craddock can talk close a little bit, but Andy Lewis used to talk close. Roger, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much for A, agreeing to do this, B, for giving up your time after the end of a really ridiculously busy day unloading everything from the tour and stuff. And let, let's hope we get back on the road in 2022 and see you back out there. Yeah, right? hopefully we've got to live with Amway at some stage, so hopefully things will get normal-ish. And good luck with the new material for Skeletal Family as well. Yeah, go out and buy it when it comes out. <laughs> They'll be streaming it for free. <laughs> yeah, you tight bastards. Thanks for, so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. No problem. Well, there you go. What an incredible experience. Who would have thought that when I came up with this nuts idea that I'd be heading to Paul Weller's HQ Black Barn Studio? Amazing. My first and I hope not my last visit to the barn. Fingers crossed. And my thanks to Roger. What a brilliant guest. Fascinating stuff. Check out my website for more details about our conversation. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have some very special guests coming up. Omar, Tracy Young, Max Beasley is going to be on the podcast. And of course, our very first live shows with Gary Crowley and Steve Tufty Carver. Tickets on sale right now. Paul Weller, Fan Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please share on your social media channels. Help to spread the word. You can get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. You can also buy our exclusive pin badges. And if you'd like to get me a virtual coffee, that'd be lovely as well. Just go to PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.